And please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Eight to ten-year-olds are dismissed. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13, which is the entirety of the chapter, will be our text for the morning. While you're turning there, just a slight correction to Pastor Jason's announcement. He's not looking at me right now. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he knows what I'm going to say, and he approves. Yeah. Uh, Christmas falls more frequently on Sunday than every seven years uh, because of the way math works, days in the week, days in the year. You can go home and figure that out. Uh, it actually falls more frequently than that. So, yes, we are having church on Christmas Sunday. The last time we did this was 2017, and about uh, 30 of you were there. <laughs> and that's not a rebuke on you. Uh, it was a crazy snowstorm that morning. It snowed on Christmas morning, and it snowed quite a bit for Prescott on Christmas morning. How many of you remember that Sunday? Yeah. Um, Chris and Kim, you guys were there, I think. I think it was like us and like four more people, you know. Um, uh, that was our last Sunday at Miller Valley Elementary School. So we had this great plan to gather for Christmas on this Sunday morning, and so many people in our congregation couldn't even get <laughs> to church that morning. We had guys show up few hours early to shovel snow on Christmas morning. It, uh, in many ways, it was a sweet time, um, but it was our last Sunday at Miller Valley School, and then the very next Sunday, we came in here for our first service on January 1st of 2018. So, um, so if you pray really hard, maybe it would be our last service in this building, and our building would all of a sudden be built <laughs> on January 1st, 2023. Who knows? It's happened before. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're in this, uh, I, I told you last week, I, I've kind of titled the, the section of Scripture Q&A with an Apostle because this is the section of 1 Corinthians where uh, the Apostle Paul is evidently responding to questions that the Corinthian believers had been asking him. And so he answered a question about marriage, and then that kind of launched Paul off into some thoughts about singleness and sexual intimacy, things like that. So we covered that in 1 Corinthians 7. Here, evidently, he's uh, getting to another one of their questions concerning idols and specifically meat offered to idols. And you might think, well, that's not a big deal today. Well, in some places of the world it is for new Christians, but there are some principles to understand about Christian liberty and looking out for one another that are instructive for us in 1 Corinthians 8 through 11. So, in these next few uh, chapters, we're going to see Paul talk about idolatry, uh, love, Christian liberty, uh, not engaging in the ways of the world. There's a lot to learn from these next three chapters. So, it's still a section where we're doing Q&A with an apostle. It's just a different topic now. It's on idolatry. And today, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 8. So, please follow along as I read. Now, concerning food offered to idols… We know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called many, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, 
Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I've entitled this message, Knowledge Isn't Everything. I'll be honest with you, um, healthy food scares me. Um, When I hear that there's a healthy new restaurant in town that I should try, I walk in a little nervous. Because from my experience, things that are bad for you taste better. That's, That's just my experience. Maybe you've experienced that too. And health food sometimes tastes like cardboard, okay? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes, in rare moments of God's common grace, something that's really healthy for you tastes really, really good. I think there's a theological analogy there. Sometimes knowledge, theological knowledge, tastes a lot like cardboard to the people who are around those with theological knowledge. When really it would be great if theological knowledge was coupled with the salt and spices and flavor of love, and then we got to enjoy healthy truth and love. That's that's what we want right there. That's what we want to experience from other people who have knowledge. We want to experience their knowledge coupled with love. And that's what Christ expects His followers to demonstrate, a knowledge of truth coupled with love. Jesus Himself, and we celebrate this at this time of year, when He came, He came like this, according to John 1.14, and the Word became flesh, God became flesh, and dwelt among us. What did we see when He came? And we've seen His glory, His greatness. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, and here's what it looked like, full of grace and truth. That's what we see in Jesus. We see God Himself in human flesh, full of grace, full of truth. God not only is fully gracious and fully truthful, Jesus is not only fully gracious, fully truthful, He also expects, as I just said, His followers to demonstrate the same qualities. And the Corinthian church didn't always do that. People in the Corinthian church didn't always do that. Some of the Corinthian believers were truth people and not love people. 
You see this all throughout the book. It, it rears its ugly head in a number of ways, a number of situations, whether it's the strong people or themselves thinking that they're strong, thinking that they can eat meat offered to idols in an idol's temple and not really caring anything at all about their fellow brothers and sisters who could be troubled by that, or whether it arises in the discussion in uh, chapter 12 and 14 about spiritual gifts. There was a certain pride and knowledge they had, but they were really jealous and at odds with one another. So there was a lot of truth in their mind and not a lot of love. Specifically, they were operating based on their theological knowledge and not considering the consciences of their other brothers and sisters. Now, the Bible does not downplay knowledge at all, and I'm not downplaying it. I'm saying the focus of this passage is on adding love to that knowledge. And if you add love to your theological knowledge, then you actually have true knowledge. True knowledge includes love, and that combination seeks to protect brothers and sisters. This morning, we're going to see a threefold argument to convince us to add love to our knowledge. A threefold argument to convince us to add love to our knowledge. And at the end of this, I'm going to walk through some implications for us from this passage. Here's the first part of the argument Beware of knowledge that puffs up. Beware of knowledge that puffs up. Let me read verses one through three. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. That's in quote for, quotes for a reason. They were saying that. All of us possess knowledge, Paul. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, Paul says, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. So Paul's clearly addressing one of their questions to him. He does that throughout the book by these words. Now concerning, so it's a different way of saying, now concerning the question you asked about here, food offered to idols, and then he quotes them. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Again, that's what they were saying to Paul. All of us possess knowledge. We know that an idol's nothing. We can therefore eat in this idol's temple. No big deal. We're not worshiping the idol. We can eat in that temple. And Paul's saying, hold on a second. This knowledge of yours puffs up. You become arrogant with this type of knowledge. And then he contrasts knowledge with love here but love builds up. So they possess this knowledge that an idol is nothing, and you'll see that in the second paragraph. But he's warning them about this type of theological knowledge that doesn't consider loving others. Knowledge makes you swollen with conceit, can tempt you to do that. The person who's truly knowledgeable in the way that God wants them to be knowledgeable has this theological knowledge, and also it's accompanied by love. They had this knowledge without that love. There's a term that's gone around for a number of years uh, toward uh, Christians who all of a sudden gain 
more theological understanding. So maybe they, they are newly saved, or maybe they've been uh, saved in part of uh, maybe weak teaching environments, but all of a sudden they get, they get clued into the Word of God and good theology, sound doctrine, and, and all of a sudden their heads start to puff up. And there's a term given to those type of people. It's called people who are in the cage stage. Some of you might think, well, what do you mean by cage stage? Well, it's, it's taken from the world of professional wrestling. Some of you may know this. Others of you will pretend that you don't. Um, in professional wrestling, I don't know if they still do, uh, they had cage matches. They would put a cage around the ring and the two wrestlers would fight and they'd be in this cage. And so, the, the, the term was kind of given to these uh, immature Christians who had all this theological knowledge but would beat each other up with it. They were in the cage stage. And a lot of um, people will talk about, I remember when I was in the cage stage. I remember when I was in the cage stage. And hopefully I'm coming out of that more and more every day. But it's not, it's not to discount theological knowledge at all. It's saying theological knowledge without love is still really lacking. And I would argue it's not true theological knowledge. Paul actually says that in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So these people think that they have all this knowledge, all this theological precision, but there's still something they don't get yet. And that's the knowledge about the need for love in their own lives. Theological cage stage is where some of these Corinthian believers were. Again, Paul says, if anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, this is, this is saying that you who have this theological precision and knowledge and don't couple it with love, guess what? There's still some things you need to learn. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This, this sentence seems kind of out of place. It seems like it should say, if anyone loves God, he will therefore then love others with his knowledge. It doesn't say that though. See, these Corinthians, and we, we've seen this already throughout the book a number of times, they prided themselves on the fact that they had arrived now because they were now Christians. They had wisdom. They had true knowledge. And this is a subtle way for Paul saying, guess what? It's not about what you claim to know. Does God know you? Does God know you? You can say that you know this or that congressman or this or that famous, you know, celebrity. You can say that, but if you show up and they say, who are you? You don't know them. There are people in the Bible all throughout the Scriptures that claim to know God, and then it appears when the time comes, they actually don't know Him. You can see that in Matthew 7. So, let's forget about your knowledge for a moment, Corinthian believers. Do you, are you known by God? If anyone loves God, he's known by God. So, one of the ways you can tell that God knows someone, God's worked in their life, there's a relationship between them and God that's on peaceful terms. One of the ways you can tell that is that they love others. You can see this in Peter's writings, Paul's writings, John's writings, because you see this in Jesus' teaching. If you are known by God in a saving way, you will have, as an evidence of that relationship, love for other people. And so Paul's challenging this group, beware of a knowledge that puffs up 
without love. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 20, it ends with this. At the end of the book, at the end of 1 Corinthians, listen to what it says. This is somewhat shocking. All the brothers send you greetings. Uh, actually, uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's strong language. Paul's saying, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are damned, accursed, assigned to hell. And here earlier in our passage, in chapter 8, he says that if anyone loves God, he's known by God. The, the, the contrast there, the, the opposite of that is if anyone doesn't love God, he's not known by God. So Paul goes after this group that says they've got all this knowledge and says, but are you known by God? Does God know you? And if he does, what will be true of your life? Love. And many of these people lack love. I don't think this is Paul saying many in the Corinthian church aren't real Christians. This is him challenging them. I want you to consider this. If God really knows you, you'll have love. And so he writes to them, and many of them don't display this love, so it's his way of kind of getting them into shape. Hey, add love to your knowledge. Second part of the argument, verses 4 to 6, notice how knowledge asserts itself. So beware of simply just having knowledge without love. And then secondly, notice how knowledge asserts itself. Now this paragraph is what they would be saying. These Corinthian believers who think that they can eat in idols' temples and they don't really have a concern for people in the congregation that might be troubled by that. This is how that knowledge asserts itself. All right, let me read the paragraph. Verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from who, for whom all things exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now that is a correct statement. There's one God. There's one creator. They're right. And we'll get to the third paragraph in a moment. But in the third paragraph, Paul says, that's not enough, though. You need to operate correctly based on your theological knowledge. But right here, their knowledge is asserting itself. We know there are no real idols. They're not alive. So we, the argument being can eat in an idol's temple, and it's no big deal. Now, they're wrong about that part. Let me talk to you a little bit about why this is such a big deal. In Corinth, there were about 17 different idol temples, all right? Now, if you were Jewish, you already knew about the prohibitions of idolatry and going to an idol's temple. That wouldn't have been very difficult for a a new Christian who came out of a Jewish background. But for a Christian who was formerly, um, or who wasn't Jewish, a Christian who didn't come out of a Jewish background, that would be difficult because all their life they would have been going to the idol's temple. Now you might think, well, big deal. You're a Christian now. You don't need to go and worship at an idol's temple. Well, 
sounds easy, but an idol's temple was associated with all the social happenings of the day. If you wanted your business to succeed, you went to the idol's temple, had dinner, and met with those people in your trade for your business to succeed. If you didn't go there, you wouldn't succeed in business. There were social ramifications to not going to an idol's temple. Eating in idol's temples was a common part of their life. This is where often they celebrated birthdays. So, so let's say you go home and this week you get an invitation to, you know, your little, your little child's friend's birthday. Johnny's turning five. Show up to Peter Piper Pizza. And for us, no big deal. Can we do it? Okay, it works for our calendar. We'll show up. But, but this would have been, Johnny's turning five, come to the idol's temple for a celebration. And as a new Christian, you'd have to discern whether you should go or not to that type of thing. And if you didn't, what, you don't love Johnny? You're not really friends with Johnny? That would be the scenario. So you could see how new Gentile believers could be tempted to be social outcasts. That's why they wanted to keep eating in these idols' temples. They knew we're not worshiping idols. They're not real. We worship the one true and living God. We can do this. And Paul has a problem with that reasoning. In these idol temples, there were dining halls connected to them. You even think of churches nowadays with, with a church sanctuary, maybe where they gather for their worship, and then a dining hall next door where they have fellowship and do all sorts of events, wedding receptions, things like that. That was what the idol temples were like back then. That's what would happen then. You'd worship, offer sacrifices, and then go to a different dining area and eat the meat that was just offered to the idols. Again, Jews normally... Jews that were now Christians didn't really have an issue with this, but Gentiles would have. They want to follow Christ, but they also don't want to give up all of their social privileges and be seen as outcasts. That's what they had to weigh. Again, to participate in civic life, you had to be in an idol's temple regularly. That's where business discussions took place. If you were an athlete... Before the famous Isthmian Games, think about the Olympic Games, if you were an athlete at that time, part of joining in the, the competition would be going to an idol's temple beforehand to sacrifice. So imagine you're a Christian athlete. You're, you've devoted yourself to athletics. This is what you're known for. You would have to ask the question, can I participate in these games or not? I want to. This has been my aim, my focus. But now all of a sudden, I've got to go and sacrifice this idol now, I know the idol's not real. I know it's not alive, so I think I can go, right? Paul's got some words for that. When a Christian didn't eat in an idol's temple, they would be disparaged and be considered antisocial. You know that in the first century, Christians were considered atheists because they didn't go and worship the gods. They would have been antisocial. Their families would have taken issue with that. So behind 1 Corinthians 8 is this desire for these Corinthian believers to, yes, be committed to Jesus Christ, but to not lose credibility with the people around them who weren't Christians. That's in the backdrop. That's what's happening here. Sometimes the meat offered to the idols would be sold later on in temple markets and eaten in homes. 
Paul's going to address that situation in a couple chapters. How do, you, how do you discern that as a believer? What do you do there? You're not eating in the idol's temple, but what about when you go to someone's home and they say that this has been sacrificed to an idol? What do you do? And there will be consideration given there, and I'll, I'll kind of give you a heads up. The brother or sister that sees you doing that and might be troubled by that, they come into play again. Paul's trying to get you to consider other brothers and sisters to love. For now, Christians in Corinth were trying to do both. Trust in Christ, but maintain their social standing in the community. Verse 4. Therefore, as to eating the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. Again, they're right. That's what Isaiah 41 says, Isaiah 44, 6. There's only one God. Idols aren't alive. They're right. Verse 5. For although there are many, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We know that there are many so-called gods, so-called lords. They're not alive. We know there's one God and Father who created everything, through whom we exist, for whom we exist. And he's got a son through whom he created everything and for whom we exist. We know that. This is, this is theological precision from them, and they're right. They just apply that wrong. That's the issue. They're right. There's only one God. And they use this as a justification to keep eating in the idol's temple. Now let's notice really the strong part of chapter 8, what Paul concludes here. Point number three, take care that knowledge doesn't destroy. Take care that all this knowledge, this theological precision, I can eat here, these aren't real gods, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. Be careful that that doesn't destroy other believers. Verses 7 to 13. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not everyone knows this knowledgeable Corinthian, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So there are these believers who were saved out of idolatry, and they think that when you eat, it's still an offering to this idol. Now, again, it's not, but they think it is. And so as they watch you going to the idol's temple, maybe they're standing outside and watching you eat that, they're thinking, oh my goodness, that just seems so wrong to me. But, but, but Mary's doing it. Peter's doing it. Maybe I can do it. This feels so wrong. This feels so wrong. You need to know that there are people in the body, Corinthian believers, who are experiencing that as they eat. Their conscience is troubled. Their, their conscience is accusing them. You're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong. And they're shutting it off, shutting it off, and still doing it because you were doing it. Let's talk for a moment about the conscience. The conscience is not the Holy Spirit. A conscience can be manipulated. A conscience can, can be misinformed. The conscience isn't the Holy Spirit. But the conscience is a gift that God gives all people. You can see that in Romans chapter 2. Even unbelievers have a conscience. They know when they've done something wrong. 
Now, over time, they might shut that conscience off, and that conscience becomes weakened, and now they start doing all sorts of things wrong, and they don't even care because they've taught themselves, they've trained themselves to ignore their conscience. That's not a good thing. Conscience can be eroded, can wear away. A conscience also can be overly sensitive. There are things that you are able to do as a Christian that you think you shouldn't do so it's overly sensitive and maybe misinformed. So a conscience can be misinformed and not have enough knowledge. Let me just say this, and I hope it's obvious. You want a theologically informed and active conscience. You want that. I think it's a great prayer to regularly pray, Lord, make me sick over my sin. Make me sick over temptation. Let my conscience be so active that when there's unrighteousness, I'm so troubled I run away from it. You want an active conscience. And let me say this also. You don't want to go against your conscience. You start to, to erode it, and that's not good. You train it to not be affected by doing wrong things. And so what often happens is your unrighteousness grows larger and larger and larger. And in this passage, you need to think about other people's consciences. You don't want to contribute to the erosion of their conscience. Sometimes there are groups of Christians that get together and someone there maybe has an issue with what we're going to go do. And it's not necessarily a sinful thing. Ah, I just don't feel right about this or that. What you don't want to do is gang up and say, oh, come on. You don't want to train them to go against their conscience. There may be a time down the road to give them knowledge about what they're able to do and what they're not, but you don't want them to go against their conscience in the moment. You do not want that because it trains them, again, in different temptations, different situations, to turn it off. Be quiet. I'm going to go do this. That's not a good thing. And so consider your own conscience, but in this passage, consider the conscience of other believers. Verse 8, this is what those Corinthian believers were saying to Paul. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off when we do. Okay, yeah. Righteousness isn't based on what food you eat. It's a matter of the heart. You're right there. But, verse 9 Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So someone sees you doing something that you think is okay, they're troubled by it, and they then engage in what you're doing and their conscience is troubled. That's a problem. You've caused another person to go against their conscience. Verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person, and look at this word, is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. You see how strong that is? We are so tempted to make our decisions based just on what we think and what we prefer. Even take a Christian liberty. I can do this. I'm going to do it. I don't care what anyone says. 
I'm not going to be legalistic. I can do it. I'm going to do it. But Paul's saying, hold on. Might other brothers and sisters be troubled by that? You need to consider that. Our Christian lives aren't lived in a vacuum with just us. Our Christian liberties are to be understood and enjoyed based on what it does to the people around us. So sometimes we lay aside our liberties for the sake of love. That's the whole theme of chapter 9. Next week, Paul's demonstrating, this is how I do it. I'll lay it aside. You get a glimpse of that at the end. Therefore, a food of 8.13, therefore, a food makes my brother stumble. I'll never eat meat lest I make another, my brother stumble. That's Paul saying, this is how I lay aside my liberty for the sake of a brother. And he's trying to get them to do the same thing. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block. So what's the response? What's the response from Paul? You've got this knowledge. You're right. An idol is nothing. It's not alive. Jesus is alive. He created everything. Everything exists for him. The Father is alive. He created everything. Everything exists for him. You're right. That's the one true and living God. An idol is nothing. But you need to be careful that you don't wound another brother or sister by enjoying your liberties when it might cause them to stumble. Jesus himself had strong words about causing believers to stumble, didn't he? What did he say? It'd be better for that person to have a millstone tied around their neck and drown in the bottom of the sea. The strong language. We can take from Jesus' words, from the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, that it's not a small thing. It's not a small thing to wound another brother or sister or brother or sister's conscience. We are to protect one another's consciences. Protect one another from engaging in sin and temptation and even doing things that they think are wrong. We can't do that. Again, Paul's response to all of this uses himself as a positive example. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Is this hyperbole? Maybe so. Who knows? I think in the context, Paul's talking about meat offered to idols. It could be that Paul said, I'll never eat a steak again anywhere. It could also be that I'll never eat any meat that's offered to an idol. Either way, whatever side you land on, the point is Paul's looking out for his brothers and sisters when he eats. You know that famous passage coming up in chapter 10? Some of you have this, you know, crocheted in your kitchen somewhere. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We, we, we quote that a lot. In everything you do, do the glory of God. The context of that is when you're eating meat offered to an idol, consider your other brothers and sisters and eat to the glory of God. That's what that means in its immediate context. So the church is called to not just have theological precision, but to have love for one another, to consider one another. So I've got four implications here for us based on this passage. Four implications. We'll put these on the screen Implication number one, God desires a Christian to have knowledge and to build up the body in love. God desires for Christians to have knowledge and to build up the body in love. Having theological precision means nothing if you're not using it to love others. If you're not building up the body of Christ. 
There's no place, there's no place for the individualistic, theological know-it-all who harms other people or doesn't help other people. There's no place for that. The scriptures don't, don't commend that. What God desires is for us to grow in the knowledge of him, grow in the knowledge of his will, grow in the knowledge of his word, and then, therefore, to bless one another, to edify one another, to build one another up. Have you ever seen the Arizona Diamondbacks mascots? They're these real people, but they've, they put on this, like, mascot head. It's this giant head on these, like, real people bodies. That's what some believers can look like sometimes. Just kind of normal body, nothing special, giant head. And they just hurt people with it. Uh, that's not what the Lord desires. That's not what Paul obviously desires here. It's not what the Holy Spirit desires here. The will of God is that people who are growing in the knowledge of him roll up their sleeves, serve one another, put towels around their waist to wash one another's feet, have arms that are ready to embrace one another when they're mourning, share their resources, are there for the struggling. That's something beautiful because that looks a lot like Christ, full of grace, full of truth. And as I was preparing for this this week, I honestly thought of so many positive examples in this church. Pursuing theological knowledge for the sake of knowing our God better and also people all around this place serving one another day in, day out. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, being there when someone's sick, when someone's in need. I think as, as one of the elders, I'm just speaking on behalf of all of us, I think so many of you do that well. And I praise the Lord because a number of people have commented about this church that it's a place of knowledge. We want to understand the scriptures and it's a place of warmth and love. I praise the Lord for that. I pray that we would continue to excel, repent of any ways that we don't do that. But may the Lord continue to make this place a place of grace and truth and even more than we are now. But God desires to have knowledge for Christians to have knowledge and to build up the body in love. So there could be someone out there because I know this in theologically accurate environments. I know that there are sometimes people out there that prize themselves on their theological accuracy and don't serve the body in any way, don't help in any way, don't contribute, don't meet needs. I'd say, friend, that life, that way of living is not what the scriptures prize. Know your God, pursue knowing him, and care for your brothers and sisters. Second implication, God takes seriously our failure to protect one another. God takes seriously our failure to protect one another. These are strong words in the third paragraph. Strong words in verses 7 to 13. Talks about destroying another brother or sister. Is there any way that you've done this? Is there any way that you have not helped protect another brother or sister? That you've not guarded their conscience? That you've not cared about their conscience? I think based on this passage, it would be a good thing to confess that to the Lord and to go and make that right with them. Ask them for forgiveness. The Lord forgives that. 
Paul's writing to believers who are living wrongly, and he's seeking to get their attention. There's grace. This is one of the ways God sanctifies us. We do something wrong. He confronts us through his word. He forgives us and brings us along to look more like Christ than we did last week. This is how he works in us. So if that's you, if you've caused another person to stumble, if you've encouraged someone to go against their conscience, confess that to the Lord. Deal with the Lord and go and make that known to them. Third implication. As Christians, we don't make decisions with only ourselves in mind. Even regarding Christian liberty, we don't make those decisions just with ourselves in mind. How might this affect other people? How might this trouble the conscience of another person? And be willing to love them and lay down your liberty. I'm not saying you always have to, but at times you may. You may need to. Fourth, And this is in light of this is in light of the Corinthian believers and why they would have wanted to keep going to the idol temples. Now remember, they know they're not going to worship the idol. But they're going because of the social ramifications for not going. So for us, we need to hold our Christianity tightly and our careers and associations loosely. The Corinthians wanted Christ and acceptability with those around them. And sometimes you can have both. But sometimes you have to make a choice. I know a number of Asian brothers and sisters who literally have to decide between following Christ, being faithful to Christ, and going and eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Still, their extended families still go to temples and eat. Back in California, our old church, just a few blocks away, there was a giant Buddhist temple, and people would go and eat and engage in festivities there. Now imagine being a Christian, uh, someone from an Asian nation, maybe uh, Chinese, and, and being a new Christian, and you know that idol's not real. My God who saved me is real. The living God revealed in the scriptures is real. He's changed me. I know that, but my family all expects me to go. And if I go, that could trouble another Asian brother or sister who's kind of still wondering, should I do that? Should I not? I really think that's false worship. You've got to make that decision. Some people still struggle with this type of thing happening in 1 Corinthians 8. Christians might become outcasts in the eyes of their family. In many of those cultures, to not go to the temple, to not engage in those types of meals, is to deny your family. For some, when you become a Christian, it's a way of saying, I'm done with my family, even though you don't mean that. Talk to our brothers and sisters at Indian Bible College. For many of them to, con- to commit to Christ, to convert, to repent of their sins and trust in Christ, is a way their family thinks they're turning their backs on their Native American culture and they're following the white man's religion. Christianity is not a white man's religion, by the way. Okay? But that's what those people think. You follow Jesus, you are saying you deny us. Well, Christians aren't doing that. But my point is Christians sometimes are forced to make a decision. 
family or Christ? Social acceptability or Christ? I'll give you another example. If you, if you want to be an attorney, you need to be licensed by the American Bar Association, by your state chapter or your state bar association, past the state bar. What does the American Bar Association do or the state bar? Well, here's what the American Bar Association does. The mission of the ABA is to, is to be the national representative of the legal profession, serving the public and the profession by promoting justice, prof professional excellence, and respect for the law. So in most states, if you're going to practice the law, you've got to pass the state bar exam. Do you know that some people are pushing for attorneys to be disbarred who express views contrary to the state bar with regard to religion, sexual orientation, and gender identity. There may be kids in families who are part of this church that might want to be attorneys one day. And if they are a committed follower of Jesus Christ, they might not be allowed to be part of the bar. And that's, that means they're not going to be able to practice law. You may have to make that decision. That may come up. I think we all understand that that's not out of the realm of possibility, right? Could happen. Imagine being a Christian athlete. Christian athlete told to wear a patch celebrating gay pride. To make that decision. Do you wear that patch? What if you've got another Christian athlete that's been saved out of a homosexual lifestyle and they see that and they think, are you okay with that as a Christian? That doesn't seem right to me. I wonder about that. Can I be okay with certain things there? Are you troubling another believer's conscience? Christians might not be able to perform athletically if they don't tip the hat to the sinful practices of the world. So is it Christ or athletics? Again, Christ or career, Christ or family. You do understand the Bible raises that question a number of times. Jesus raised that question a number of times. Who will you follow if you need to make a decision like this? I want to ask you in closing to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, starting in verse 21. We're just going to read to the end of the chapter. I want you to hear Jesus' words about maybe being unpopular at the world because, again, this is what the Corinthians were trying to hold on to. A commitment to Christ, but also not losing all of their social privileges. Matthew 10, starting in 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated for all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of the household? And then this. So have no fear of them, 
For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body or take away your business or fail to license you or whatever it may be. Don't fear them. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Listen, if when I was going through these examples of what it might mean for you to stay committed to Christ, there were certain fears cropping up for you and your children, don't be afraid. The Father cares for you. See that little reminder here? Verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Now, let's pause for a moment. Haven't we just been singing about peace on earth? Didn't you tell us earlier in the service that God brought peace to the earth? Yes and no. Yes, he brought the opportunity for salvation, new life in Christ, peace between God and man, and even some peace between men. But when you follow Jesus Christ, it doesn't always lead to peace with other people. The curse still reigns for a moment, for a time, but one day all will be right and all will be truly at peace. We are at peace right now with God. Yes, Jesus came. We're at peace with God when we trust in his death and resurrection. But we also struggle sometimes. There's still wars. There's still conflict. There's still problems between us and unbelievers or even us and believers. There's still things to be worked out. So yes, there's peace, and no, there's not yet final peace yet. Okay, so back to verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And here's the context. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why? Because of a commitment to Christ. Verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. You seek to hold on to all of that social acceptance, you'll lose your life. You're not committed to Christ chiefly. And whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. And I want you to know, I don't say this callously or as if it's easy Many of you in this room have lost family members, children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, parents, because of your commitment to Christ. And I don't say that to be cold or harsh. I hope that you see your Lord promises you a reward. Your Lord promises that he will make up for the loss. How? I don't know. Sometimes it seems unbelievable. How could it be, how could I, how could it be better than what it is now? I don't get it. This is where we'll have to take him at his word. Whoever loses his life for my sake will 
find it. I can't wait to see what some of your rewards look like in heaven because of some of the people you've lost here on earth. And I'm going to trust the Lord with you that he's going to reward you in that day. Please keep holding on. Please keep trusting him. Verse 40. He talks to the disciples, talks about their, their teaching and preaching of the gospel. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And then this. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. See how the Lord ends this section by saying, listen, you may lose your life. You may lose your social acceptance. You keep caring for the little disciples of Jesus. You keep caring for one another, and I'll reward you. Go back to first, or go forward to 1 Corinthians 8. You who are concerned about social acceptability, be willing to let it go. You care for the weak ones. You care for the little ones. You care for your brothers and sisters. And in the words of Jesus, you'll find your life. He'll reward you for that. So may we be a church that considers one another's consciences, that protects one another, and who also all together have collectively said we will hold on to Christ tightly and hold on to our social acceptance loosely. If we can have it, we can have it. If we lose it, we'll find our life. Let's pray. Father, there are real decisions to make as your followers. It's not always easy. So I'd ask you for strength, strength to not prize social acceptability over faithfulness to your son. I pray for the strength for this church to love one another well, to protect one another, to guard one another's consciences. Would you make us a church that continues to sacrifice our own rights and privileges for the sake of one another? Pray that you would make us a church where we don't exist as a bunch of individuals, but where we look out for one another and the temptations for one another. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for teaching us. And whatever you're doing with this passage in the hearts of all of us, we pray that you'd do it and bring forth fruit for your son's glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.